Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for us. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful for all of the ways your grace has provided for us. You have uh, transformed us from death into life, real life, spiritual life, based on our new union with Christ. And that as part of that union with Christ, we are part of this new entity, the church, and all of the powerful dynamics that you have provided for church-age believers, and that you have uh, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You have created this new man uh, that we are a part of being in Christ, this new entity, the church, the body of Christ. It is referred to as a new building and a new temple. And Father, all of these metaphors have have rich significance for us to understand this uh, tremendous radical new identity that we have and that we are no longer in Adam but now in Christ and we need to learn all that you have provided for us and understand that the, that you have uh, set up a new uh, standard for us in terms of living, in terms of our lifestyle, in terms of being a reflection of the character of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that as we study your word today that you would challenge us with what that means in terms of our own thinking and behavior, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, we are looking at this grace orientation that is really the theme of this much of this whole section that and here we're looking at how grace orientation involves forgiveness forgiveness is one of those difficult things it's a little easier i think for some people depending on their personality and other factors for other people it's extremely difficult for them to genuinely forgive others, especially when they have faced massive betrayal or abuse, uh, physical or emotional assaults, and if they have faced the antagonism and hostility of others. As I have spent a lot of time this year reading biographies of missionaries that have encountered tremendous persecution, I am uh, amazed at how they forgive their enemies. This is the product of the Holy Spirit. This is not something we can just generate on our own because forgiveness for others, as we'll see in this package, I mean this passage, is all about uh, grace orientation, understanding God's grace, and it's a product of the Holy Spirit. It's related to love for others as Christ loved us. So we need to come to understand this and that we dare not let the personal or subjective hurts, which uh, usually result in a variety of different mental attitude as well as overt sins, as we see listed in this passage, uh, resentment, anger, bitterness, outbursts of anger, abusive language, things of this nature, that this is just a focus that we're living on, our, on the basis of our sin nature. Our sin nature's orientation is... totally toward the self. You've hurt me. You said things that I don't like. It's all about me. It's not about how I should respond to you understanding grace and being a picture of the forgiveness that God has for us. You know, our ultimate picture is Christ on the cross as he is looking at these Roman soldiers who have just 
absolutely just beaten everything out of him. The physical misery is beyond anything that most of us in this room will ever face, and that they have reviled him and blasphemed him, called him names, uh, whipped him unmercifully so that even his bowels and skeletal structure were exposed from the from the lashes. And he prays to the Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And the sin of anybody in our lives against us that may uh, be a challenge to us and may uh, deeply, deeply hurt us is not nearly to the degree of what he faced on the cross. But you can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. It has to be an understanding of the word of God. And so we have to understand that the problem we have is our sin nature. Scripture says in Romans 6 that we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That means that there should be a separation from that. Whenever we have a command in Scripture, uh, those commands are addressed to our volition. We have a choice in how we respond and react to people. Unfortunately, most of us have habit patterns that immediately react or respond in the wrong way, and then maybe about five or ten minutes or days later, we finally realize I need to uh, go back and reevaluate how I am reacting and responding. So we've come to a section here in Ephesians 4 where in the last uh, several lessons we broke down the passage in Ephesians 4.30 which gives us the command, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And as you look at your passage in your scriptures, you should uh, circle that word and because there's you don't have this kind of a conjunction between the different commands, between the different verses, so that this shows that that this is is linking in to some degree with the passage uh, prior to this. But it's do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We looked at each one of those parts and that grieving is a figure of speech, has to do with an anthropopathism that is using a human emotion, applying it to God, and he does not actually possess that human emotion, but we apply it to God, and God uses these various metaphors throughout Scripture so that we can come to understand to some degree his purposes and his policies. And so we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And the picture there is, as I pointed out, is that when we violate the righteousness of God, that when you think of the most extreme grief that you have uh, experienced in your life, there is something comparable to that in the character of God in that violation of his, of his character. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we looked at the doctrine of the personality of the Holy Spirit, and we also looked at the whole picture of uh, his salvation. Now, in reference to the grieving, I want to go back and point out uh, one thing that I did previously. Isaiah 55.8, God tells us, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and nor are your ways my ways. And he goes on to say, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So this tells us that our knowledge of God is, is based on many comparisons and analogies to give us some idea, because God is so distinct from us. That's part of that uh, creator-creature uh, distinction. God, who is the infinite personal creator God, thinks and plans and has policies that are far beyond our ability to understand. That's the whole point in the book of Job. When Job finally reaches a point where he's beginning to spre- express some of his frustration and anger toward God, because of all of the physical suffering that he's gone through, the loss of his children, uh, all of the various things, then God begins to answer him. 
And God doesn't answer him by explaining anything. He doesn't say, now, now, this is what happened among the angels when Satan came and he challenged me. He doesn't give him any of that information at that point. Obviously, he did later because Job's the one who wrote all of this down, we believe. But what he is, what he does is he asks, asks a series of, of uh, rhetorical questions to cause uh, Job to realize he can't explain anything. That God is asking, well, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I laid the foundation? Where were you when I set out the stars? And he asks question after question and question, and the bottom line is, in our finite thinking, our limited thinking, we can't comprehend the whys and the wherefores of God's plans. We have promises like Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And so we can rest in those promises. But God is saying we basically don't have the capacity to understand even if he told us we wouldn't get it. So we are to trust him. He is the infinite personal God who is beyond our creaturely ability to comprehend in many ways. We can understand what is revealed in Scripture, but we cannot necessarily understand or comprehend a God in in all of his being. So this is very important. You have this passage in Isaiah uh, 55, 8, and 9. So we looked at the personality of the Spirit. We looked at being sealed by the Spirit, which happens at the instant of salvation. We are indwelt by the Spirit, but that's different. Uh, but it is goes prior to the sealing by the Spirit. This is so important because this is one of the strongest evidences in Scripture of our permanent salvation, that we are permanently saved, that there is nothing we can do to change that once we trust in Christ as Savior, and that what Scripture teaches is that this sealing by the Spirit is the down payment for eternity. The down payment, it indicates God's ownership and protection, which secures the salvation of the church-age believer. From the moment of faith, when the Holy Spirit indwells, until we reach glorification and the ultimate salvation uh, in the future. We looked at this, that the idea of sealing is to authorize authenticate or bestow authority to someone. So all of that is related to this concept of being sealed by the Spirit. Our salvation is is, uh, authenticated, and uh, the Holy Spirit provides for us that authority that is ours as a child of God. It identifies ownership, that we are God's, and nothing can take that away from us. It protects us, it secures us, and it makes us inaccessible uh, to Satan to steal away our salvation. Nothing can take that away. And it guarantees the fulfillment of God's covenant or pledge. So all of those aspects are in this extremely uh, significant metaphor of the sealing by the Spirit. We are God's. And nothing can ever change that. We can't sin. We can't out-sin the grace of God. And so as we concluded in the last lesson, the ceiling indicates that we are authenticated as a believer, as a member of the church, that we're in the body of Christ, which is the royal family of God. It also indicates that we have been purchased. When we talk about redemption, it always has that idea of the payment of a price. We'll come back to that later this morning, that Christ paid a penalty for us as our substitute. And when we trust in Christ and we enter into the uh, church, the body of Christ, the family of God, then we are owned by him. We have we, Romans 6 talks about the fact that we are born into slavery, into the slave market of sin. But when we trust in Christ, we are transferred. Our ownership is transferred. We don't have, we're not set free in the sense that we are autonomous. We just have new ownership, which is 
which is God. So we have been purchased and we are now owned by God, which secures and protects us. So our position, our salvation, our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection means we can never lose our salvation. Now, there are always people who, for various reasons, just always worry about losing their salvation. And it, 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 the bottom line is they're trusting in their emotion rather than in the promise of God. Uh, another factor is they don't understand these things about God to the degree that they should. So they're, they've got a limited view of God, but his power is unlimited and he has the power to keep us. And throughout most of these promises uh, related to eternal security, we find the phrase, you are kept by God. He keeps us. And Jesus uses the analogy of we are held in his hand, and not only that, but we are also held in the Father's hand, and no one can take us out of his grip. So as we've gone through this study, we've seen that beginning with verse 25, going down through the 6-9, we have approximately 37 imperatives. An imperative is a command that God gives us these commands. All of these commands uh, have to do with uh, living the spiritual life. It's funny, in the last week when we were in, um, uh, when we were with uh, Friends of Israel up in New Jersey in one of our uh, sessions where we were sort of debriefing over uh, in this particular case, it was debriefing over the le- some of the legalism that we saw within the Jewish community. We went to a uh, Chavad uh, yeshiva, which is a school like a seminary, and I was just so impressed with all of the energy and all of the effort and all of the work that they are putting into becoming acceptable to God. Legalism is exhausting. I'd, I'd be going to hell. I wouldn't last five minutes. Uh, just, just, uh, just amazing. But, but you know, you have a lot of Christians who think about the law and say, "Well, I could never keep the Ten Commandments." And there are 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law, but just there are a lot of commandments in the New Testament. They're not related in the same way as the as the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments in the Mosaic Law was never designed as a means of salvation. Never. Remember Abraham in Genesis fifteen six. He he believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. That's what Paul uses as his picture of salvation in Romans chapter four. It's it wasn't based on the law. The law had not been given yet uh, when Abraham w- was alive, and so. Uh, but the law is designed to show how a people that is set apart to God should live. And it was the national constitution for Israel, and it wasn't. God never condemned Gentile nations for violating anything unique or distinctive in the Mosaic law. It wasn't for them. It was only for Israel. And in the church age, we have these commands. They're not for salvation, but they describe how uh, how God's family, the church age family, is to live. And we're going to spend all of our lives just trying to get closer and closer to that uh, objective, and we only get it, it's produced in us by God the Holy Spirit. But in this, just this one passage, we have 37 different commands. And that's just verbs that are in the imperative mood. There are a number of participles who have an imperatival sense to them. So we're going to count those down as we go forward. So, so far... As we've gone through just verse 26 down to verse uh, 30, we've seen nine commands, in, and then in today's section, there are three more. So I, to get them all on one slide, I had to reduce the font size. In 425, we have the command, uh, because you have already put off the lie, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That's the command. We are to speak within the framework of biblical truth to those around us. And that really becomes a a topical sentence idea 
for all of the various things that are said about talking. We have corrupt language, other uh, other things, evil evil speaking. All of that is speaking uh, in the framework of the lie, not on the framework of biblical truth. And uh, then in the uh, second point, in verses 2, 3, and 4, I mean, the, uh, the second, third, and fourth imperative are found in 426. Be angry. Do not let sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, not God. That should be go down on your, on your wrath. So that is a second part. You have three commands in verse 26. Then in verse 27, another one. This is your fifth command. Uh, nor give place to the devil. Then your sixth command and seventh command are in verse 20, 28. Steal no longer, and then let him labor. The one who is a thief, let him labor. Those are two more commands. Uh, the eighth command is in verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. See, the corrupt word is a word language that relates to um, living on the basis of the lie. Ninth command is what we saw in the previous verse in 430. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now we come to the three in the verse we, verse we began today, verse 31, 32, and 30, uh, and then 5, 1, which is really part of the same paragraph. Uh, let these things, and then there's a list of sins. There are six sins that are listed there. Uh, four of them are mental attitude sins. One is an overt sin, and another is a sin of the tongue. So we're to put those away from us. They should not characterize our lives. And then the 11th that is mentioned, the 11th command in verse 32 is be kind to one another. I was having trouble typing. I'm not going to tell you how much trouble I had with my computer this morning. It started going on the fritz, and I lost half my notes, and it locked up on me. And I spent most of the time just trying to figure that out. Barb was no help. I knew she wasn't ready. We've been working on this for a long time. I've got a demon in my computer. So I didn't have a chance to go back, and I didn't have time to go back and proof all these. And then the last, the twelfth command is be imitators of God. That's important. Our life is to mimic God, to mimic Jesus Christ. We are to be imitators of him because we are now in God's family. We are, uh, when we are born again, at that instant that we trust in Christ, we're identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, so we become this new creature in Christ. So it's these three commands that we're beginning to look at in uh, these next verses, beginning in uh, verse 30, 31, 32, and then 5, 1. And what we see here is that we there is a new code of conduct for the believer, and we have to learn to live according to that new conduct. That's our spiritual growth. That's our spiritual life. And so how we live after salvation is not a basis for salvation or for keeping our salvation. But it's to learn uh, to live according to all that God has given us and utilizing all of the blessings, all of the assets that God has given us from the instant of our salvation. So the focal point here is on forgiving one another. So it begins in verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And see, that's all dealing with the negatives. So these things should not characterize your thinking or your life. In contrast, we're to be kind to one another, tender-hearted. That means to be understanding and compassionate, uh, forgiving one another. Actually, it has to do more with being merciful to one another, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ 
forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. That takes us into the next chapter. It's a bad place to make a chapter, have a chapter break. Now, what we have here are three commands. The first command is to uh, put something away or to take it up, take it away. And that is this, this first Greek verb down here that's an aorist passive infinite, uh, um, imperative. And so there's some that say, well, the passive voice there indicates, indicates the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not denying that. But it's the idea, if you ever watched the old Charlton Heston portrayal of Moses in the Ten Commandments, uh, one of the things that was typical of the Pharaoh is when he was issuing a decree, he would say, so let it be written, so let it be done. See, that's just an idiom for make it happen, even though let it be done is a passive construction. He is, he is saying make it happen. So this is just an idiomatic way of, of making a statement that when, when Paul says let it be put away, he says put it away. That's what it means. So it, it's structured as a passive, but it really has an active meaning. And then, and be kind to one another. And the verb there that's translated be is the word genomai, which means to become something that you weren't before or to bring something into existence. One way you can always remember the significance of this word is if you look at the first four or five verses of John. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. Now, it uses the English verb was, but it translates a different to be verb in Greek, the word eimi, E-I-M-I. Now, when you get to the fifth verse and it introduces us to John the Baptist, it says, and there was a man. And see, in English it uses the same verb, but in Greek it shifts a me indicated continual existence in past time, but genomai indicates something that has come into existence. So the using a me indicates the eternality of the logos in verses 1 through 4, but shifting to genomai emphasizes that John's a creature. He came into existence. He came into being. And so that's the difference between those words. So it says we're to become something that we weren't before. Grace-oriented, we are to be kind to one another. And then in 5.1, is our third command, which is to be, be once again, it's genomai, be uh, an imitator of God as dear children. So each of these is, is very important. But what you see in most Bibles is that there's going to be a break between verse 32 and 5.1, where often there'll be some sort of note hidden or they'll have an outline point or something of that nature. But in the Greek, they, number one, they didn't have verse divisions. Number two, they didn't have chapter divisions when they wrote their letters. They were just written like a letter. So unfortunately, over time, both the uh, chapter divisions were added uh, sometime in the early Middle Ages, and then uh, not long before the Reformation, verses were, were added by a man named Robert Stevens, and it's all, always commented that he did this while he was riding in a carriage from Paris to Lyon, France. And there were probably several times when uh, his carriage hit a pothole because of where he put the verse markers and uh, shouldn't have been there. It's a, it go, the conclusion, therefore, really comes from and fits verses 31 to 32 because of that phrase that as God in Christ forgave you. So this is the breakdown. You have this section, verses 31 to 5-1, and then you get this new command, walk in love, in 5-2. So we're going to be looking at 31 through 5-1 all relate uh, together. So as we begin in verse, go back here, uh, verse 31, the first sin that's mentioned is bitterness. Now, why do you think Paul began with bitterness? 
Let's go back to what we learned when I was talking about grieving the Spirit. The, gr- the grieving of the Spirit was a term that was tied to Israel's rebellion against God and Moses when they were in the wilderness, and they ran out of water, and they're getting very thirsty, and they began to grumble and complain against Moses. And it went to several passages that the, actually a term grieving the Spirit, or in the second verse, God is crushed by their uh, infidelity, their unwillingness to... to uh, uh, be loyal to him. And so in Isaiah 63.10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. It's talking about the event at Meribah. Uh, Ezekiel 6.9, God is still talking about that. The, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous. It's talking about unfaithfulness to God their unfaithfulness. They weren't loyal to God. Psalm 78, 39 to 41, we looked at, uh, that they grieved him in the desert. So all of these uses of phrases like grieving God, grieving the Holy Spirit, crushing him, all relate to this same incident uh, again and again. In, Ezekiel, in Exodus, rather, 15, 23, and 24, as they're going through the desert, they came to this location where they were complaining to God, and this is where God told Moses to strike the rock. And when you've got three or four million people, it wasn't like a trickle. It wasn't even like a small waterfall. It is gushing a river that is going to provide the water for three or two or three million people. So this is a huge river that comes out of this rock. Think of a huge rock escarpment. And it just bursts forth with this water. And they refer to this place, one place that they came to as Mara, because the water that they got there was bitter. If you recall, if you've read through Ruth, the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, when her husband dies and then her two sons die, which puts them in a predicament, the two wives of the two sons, one of which is Ruth and Naomi, the mother-in-law, that she wails in grief and she says her name should be called Mara for bitter because she is grieving over the loss of her husband and her two sons. So now she is responding to that in bitterness. I once knew a woman in Dallas whose parents had named her Mara, and I've run into others that have that name. And I wonder, don't they ever read the context of these biblical names? Why would you name your daughter bitterness? Context is important. So that's what happens. In the Greek Septuagint, the word that is translate that translates Mara is the Greek word pikria. This is what is translated as bitterness in 431. So, so there's an internal organization and a, 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 a internal flow of thought in Paul that when he writes, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, his mind goes to that event in the Old Testament. So the first thing, first sin he mentions is this sin of bitterness. So he has uh, six different sins that are mentioned here. The first three go together, work together. Bitterness, we react to certain events in our lives or things that people say, and we become bitter toward them. We become resentful. And this word picria has a literal meaning related to that which had a bitter taste or pungent taste. And it came to be applied to a mental attitude of anger and resentment. So when you have this list, the first three really go together, bitterness being a reaction to what someone has said or someone has done in your life, something that has hurt your feelings, something that has been uh, uh, profoundly disappointing, and uh, maybe it really deeply hurt. Maybe you were betrayed in some horrible fashion, but we are to let all bitterness, and when you have that word all in Greek in this kind of construction, it means every kind, every category 
of bitterness. You can't say, well, it's okay if I'm bitter about this. No, it isn't. Every category is included here. So we are to set aside or put off uh, this bitterness that results then in in wrath or anger. And this word that is translated as as put, uh, put away has that idea of, of removing clothes, just taking them off so that they're no longer going to be a part uh, of your life and a part of your character. We, it's then, uh, bitterness is then followed by these two words, wrath, uh, wrath and anger. And those go together here. And the distinction is that the first word for wrath is the word thumos, and that's related ultimately to where we get our word thermos, or you get thermal, which means relates to heat. You'll have a thermometer to register the heat, the degrees of heat. And so this has to do with uh, anger that is passionate, that just erupts and boils up uh, as a result of certain circumstances and situations. The second word is orge, and orge has more the idea of a of a continual state of anger, resentment over something. You often see this: children blame their parents, rightly or wrongly for some action, or you will find this in people who have been in an abusive relationship of one kind or another, and that they have internalized this in a way that it is just a continual state of anger. They keep it, they keep it tamped down, but then just some little event will cause them to react and explode. And so there, what, what Paul is doing here by using both of these words is he's talking about every conceivable kind of anger that boils up as a result of these real or perceived hurts that have happened uh, in the person's life. Uh, so you have bitterness, uh, wrath, and anger, and then it comes to this last word, clamor. And this refers to uh, outbursts of, of um, verbal anger where you're yelling, and this would be uh, maybe in a group of Christians, and they get mad at each other and start yelling at one another. It could happen between two Christians in a marriage where all of a sudden they just lose their tempers and they begin uh, yelling at each other uh, in very abusive and insulting ways. And then it gets down to the, the last word, which is uh, uh, abusive, uh, abusive speech, but it's translated usually as as blasphemy here or in the New King James, it's evil speaking. But the Greek word is blasphemos, uh, and blasphemous is usually what we think of when we talk about somebody uh, saying something against God, but the Greek word existed long before it had a biblical application, and it was related to uh, those who were simply uh, yelling at one another, being abusive towards one another, uh, calling people names, uh, just completely out of control. So I've retranslated verse 31 uh, like, is, like we have on the screen. Let every kind or all sorts of bitterness, wrath, and anger, shouting and abusive speech, against, which could be against God or others, together with every kind of malicious evil. So that when you look in the verse and it says with all malice, the word there uh, is the Greek word kakia, which has to do with evil. So it's talking about evil speech and uh, abusive speech. Let all of that be removed from you. So that's the dealing with the negatives. The positives are then stated in verse 32. Be kind to one another. This is a grace orientation, that we are to be kind to one another. Whether people deserve it or not, in our opinion, we should still be kind to them. And the standard is that God, in God's forgiveness of us in Christ. So there's all kinds of ways in which we have disappointed God. Uh, there's all kinds of ways in which uh, we have uh, angered God in an anthropopathic sense, and uh, yet 
God forgave us. All of the sins that we have committed, God forgives us. God forgave Israel in the Old Testament. And so we are to be kind to one another. Uh, tender-hearted has the idea of merciful. You're showing mercy to somebody, and they don't deserve it. And then this is emphasized by this next word, forgiving one another. One another has to do with other believers in the body of Christ. And the pattern is how God in Christ forgave us. So twice we have the verb forgiving and forgave, and that here is one of two different words in the New Testament that are used for forgiving. In First um, John 1, 9, where we are told that if we confess, that means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the first word, afiemi. We see afiemi in a number of other passages like um, Ephesians 1, 7. We have redemption the forgiveness of sins, that's afiemi there. We'll look at Acts 13, 38, and 39. It's afiemi there. And it emphasizes the act of forgiveness. And the word, the literal meaning uh, of afiemi had to do with the cancellation of a debt. So you owe somebody someone, and this is eradicated. It's, it's wiped out. It's blotted out. And so it has this meaning of release, a pardon, a cancellation, and comes to mean forgiveness. Now, the second word, charizomai, comes from the root charis, which is the noun for grace. And it is showing a favor or kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it. So charizomai also is used as a financial term to mean canceling of a debt or eradicating, blotting out a debt. So both of these words have a financial nuance. That would probably be the primary meaning uh, outside of the New Testament, the forgiveness of a, of a debt. And so that applies also to what happens on the cross. But charizomai emphasizes the uh, motive or the attitude behind the forgiveness. It's being gracious to somebody who doesn't deserve it. But you're treating them in grace just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you and I. Now, a couple of passages I want to look at here that are significant uh, would be Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, some have taken this to refer to two different things, that we have redemption and we have forgiveness, and in some sense they are. But remember what I just said, that both Afiemi and Charizomai, and here in both of these passages it's Afiemi, that forgiveness has to do with canceling a debt. It was originally a financial term. Now, what's the meaning of redemption? Every time you hear the word redemption, you need to think that a a price is paid. That's a financial concept, isn't it? We were redeemed. The price was paid for our being purchased out of the slave market of sin. So that payment has been made. So the forgiveness of sins here is being used to say something in addition or along with, it's appositional in, in some sense, that we have redemption. We, the price has been paid through his blood. That was the transaction price, his death on the cross, comma, the cancellation of our sins because the price was paid. So that's important. These two concepts are, are, are linked very closely together. Same statement is made in Colossians 1.14, in whom we have Redemption, that is the purchase price, the payment for sin was accomplished on the cross through his death, the cancellation of sins, the forgiveness of sins. So that is just saying it in a slightly different way, but both of them are saying basically the same thing. So redemption here is apolutrosis, the L-U-T-R, the root. 
So you have lutrao, lutrosis, you intensify it by putting a preposition in front of it, a prefix, but they all have this idea of paying a penalty, paying a price. And we see that this is used, and it's important to understand that the Bible talks about forgiveness in four different ways. And I've gone through this many times, but it's very simple, and you see this coming out of Colossians 2, 13, and 14. There we read, And when you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made us alive together with him. And then, and I, I put it in, in brackets here, because he canceled. That's, that's my translation. Because he's forgiven us. That's how it's stated in most translations. But he canceled. The, it's a, it's like financially canceling a debt. He canceled all the legal guilt of our trespasses. And this is then explained in verse 14 as because he wiped out the handwriting or the certificate of debt, as it's translated in a lot of translations, that was against us and that was contrary to us. And he, it is taken out of the way when he nailed it to the cross. Notice it doesn't say when you believed in Christ. It says when he nailed it to the cross. So at the cross, the sin penalty is paid for and canceled for everybody. But that doesn't give you righteousness. It doesn't give you new life. So you've got a problem. You're spiritually dead and you're separated from God. And you ha- you don't have righteousness. And you also need to have the sin penalty paid. Those three things. And the sin penalty is paid for by Christ on the cross, but you're still spiritually dead, right? And you still lack righteousness. So by trusting Christ, we're made alive together with him, number one. That solves the birth problem of being born spiritually dead. And the second thing, uh, second thing is that, um, so that you have the cancellation of the, of the debt as what happens on the cross. And then we are born again. That gives us, gives us life. And then he imputes to us Christ's righteousness, which is the basis for our justification. So here you have the concepts of forgiveness. You have the concept of regeneration. And you have the, the concept or the doctrine of justification all tied together. Those are three different facets of the one act of what Christ did on the cross. Now, that is very important to understand. So in the first part, we have this forgiveness uh, toward God where the justice of God cancels the debt of sin, the payment. But it doesn't make us alive, and it doesn't give us righteousness but it cancels the debt. That's the first kind of forgiveness. So I call that forensic forgiveness. And so this is what Paul is talking about in Acts 38, 13, 38, and 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, that is Christ, is preached, katangelo here, which means to proclaim, is preached to you the forgiveness of sin. This is uh, aphasis again the forgiveness of sin. So that's the content of his preaching, that you have forgiveness. That's a very important reality. Sometimes the focal point of a gospel message is on regeneration. Are you born again? That's Jesus in John chapter 3 talking to Nicodemus. At other times, the emphasis is on justification. Paul emphasizes that in Romans chapter 4. How are we justified? People come to recognize a spiritual need because they need forgiveness for sins, number one. Number two, they they feel like they're they're just hopeless in life and life is empty. They need to be born again. Other, Other categories relate to the fact that how can I be just before God? God provides that for you. People come to the cross from different vantage points. The cross has different aspects and different dimensions. And, um... Basically, the emphasis here connects both forgiveness and justification in verse 39. Paul says, And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Notice the proclamation focuses on forgiveness, which is the canceling of the debt, 
And then he goes on to say what's related to this is justification. So reason I'm emphasizing this is because it's important for us to know that in light of some teaching that has become very evident over the last 20 years from the um, uh, Grace Evangelical Society, I talked about this on Thursday night, uh, they have restricted the gospel to simply accepting the gift of eternal life from Jesus with no mention of the cross uh, whatsoever. So this, I believe, is a limited approach to the gospel. I'm going to skip a couple of slides here and just point this out. In this article that came out in their recent Grace in Focus journal that for September, October 2023, uh, Ken Yates has his Ph.D. in Greek from our New Testament from Dallas Seminary. He's written an article, Believe in Jesus for the Forgiveness of Sin. Is that a saving message? I would say, yes, it is. Believe in Jesus for regeneration. Is that a saving message? Yes, it is. Believe in Jesus for redemption. Is that a saving message? Yes, it is. But what he says here very clearly, he said, Jesus certainly died on the cross for the sins of the world. When we believe in him for eternal life, we also receive the forgiveness of sins. But here at GES, we are clear in proclaiming that one must specifically believe that Jesus gives eternal life. Believing in the forgiveness of sins isn't the same. In other words, if you believe in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, but you didn't believe in him for eternal life, you're not saved. That's not true. And this has been around, this teaching has been around for at least 20 years. As I pointed out the other night, it was one of the reasons that George Meisinger got fired from his church that he founded in Southern California is because three of the four elders voted him out because three of them went along with this inadequate gospel or this limited gospel, and he was standing his ground on the basis of Acts 13, 38, and 39. And I say that because the vast majority of people don't understand that there was this enormous fragmentation of the free grace movement that occurred there. Churches split. Seminaries split. Seminaries closed. Uh, there were there were deeply personal battles between individuals that left scars and marks to this day. Many of the people who were in uh, Grace Fellowship left and did not go to church anywhere because of the uh, hurt, the bitterness, and anger in some cases uh, that that resulted from this from this emphasis. So this is a real significant. Uh, issue uh, in the church and today, and I, I don't talk much about it. I've mentioned it a few times over the years, but I know there are people who listen who n- never heard of this. They don't know. They, they read GES all the time. They subscribe to it. They don't understand and read with discernment what is said and what is not said. And it is part of my job as a pastor, as Paul told the elders at Ephesus, uh, in Acts, he said that, that there are uh, wolves will rise up from among you, the elders, who will cause divisions and lead people astray. And this is what, is what has happened in that movement. And I knew many people in that movement, and those who were initially at the head of that organization, all went in this direction. And one was a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, but this is just a, a very terrible situation. So the point that I'm making here is that we are to forgive one another uh, for Christ's sake, just as God for Christ has forgiven us. And as we go, as I go on looking at these different uh, aspects of, I'm going to back up to a slide here in a minute, um, the different aspects of forgiveness. We have this initial forensic forgiveness. The second is the realized forgiveness that comes when we trust Christ as Savior. That is when it is applied to us, and we realize that, and that is our uh, positional forgiveness in Christ. And then the third kind of forgiveness talked about in the Scripture 
is the uh, for- forgiveness that we need as we live our Christian life, as we sin. Then we use 1 John 1, 9, and that is our experiential forgiveness with God as we go from walking according to the sin nature back to uh, walking uh, according to the Spirit. So we confess our sins and we're forgiven. We're positionally forgiven. That's related to our position in Christ from the instant we're saved. We are forensically forgiven as all are because Christ paid the penalty for everybody. So you have these different dimensions and you have to look at each passage to see what it's talking about. And when we come to this passage in 432 where it says that we are to forgive one another, that is our relational forgiveness where we forgive one another for whatever ways in which one of us may offend, hurt, or harm another person. And so we forgive one another on the pattern of the way Jesus Christ uh, forgives us. And this brings us to the conclusion where we are to be imitators of God. We are to be Christ-like. We are to exhibit the same characteristic, uh, just forgive others in the same way that God in Christ forgave us. But even though we forgive people, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're all going to be chummy again. There are different things that happen and betrayals and other things that happen in life where there needs to be a separation. But there needs to be a forgiveness so you're not giving in to mental attitude, sins of bitterness, anger, resentment, and you can set this aside and that it doesn't characterize uh, your life and your thinking for the rest of your life. And there are too many people who've gone through circumstances and situations and that for the rest of their life they're struggling because they don't learn how to forgive and set it aside. And too many people think that forgiveness means that you just you just go go back to being the way you were before. And it doesn't mean that. It means you're not going to harbor resentment and bitterness and anger, and you'll forgive the person, but that doesn't mean you're going to put yourself in a position where you're going to be abused or where you're going to be the focus of, uh, of someone else's maltreatment uh, so you can go forward with your life. This is the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and we get it because we trust in Christ as our Savior. In the GES expression that what you have to believe is eternal life, did you hear the cross? No, you did not. That is why it has been called the crossless gospel. They don't, you don't have to believe Christ died on the cross for your sins. According to them, all you have to believe is that, is that Christ will give you eternal life. But the scriptures are very clear that we have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He died as our substitute and paid the penalty for our sins. And that therefore, by trusting in him and him alone, he gives us eternal life. That is the result. And that is ours along with forgiveness, along with uh, reconciliation, redemption, regeneration, all of these are part of what we get. You don't have to believe everything that is said about every dimension of the cross to be saved. You just recognize Christ died to forgive me of my sins. Christ paid the penalty for my sins. Christ redeemed me. Christ is going to regenerate me. All of those, you come at it from either any of those directions, and that's the gospel. You don't have to be a theologian to parse every aspect of the cross to make sure you're believing in the correct one. And that's a problem with that view. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you so much for the clarity of Scripture. As we go through the different authors and different writers, we see that they emphasize different aspects of the cross. They emphasize the gift of eternal life. They emphasize regeneration. They emphasize justification. They emphasize redemption and forgiveness. And, Father, we thank you that you have a sufficient salvation for us that has handled all of the problems, all of the aspects of the corruption caused by sin is handled at the cross. And we don't really come to understand all these other dimensions until we begin to grow spiritually and study your word. 
Father, we pray for us that we might be faithful in learning what it means to forgive one another as you, for Christ's sake, have forgiven us, that you have eradicated the debt. And, Father, we pray for those here or listening who have never trusted in Christ as Savior, who are uh, not aware of their eternal situation where they are spiritually dead and separated from you, and the only solution is Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd make that clear. And the only way that they can appropriate that solution is by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, the one who died and paid the penalty for our sins, rose from the dead showing that he has victory over death. And, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.